This podcast is part of the Christian Geek Central Network at ChristianGeekCentral.com. The Strangers and Aliens Podcast, episode 212. Till We Have Faces, Part 2, The Book Discussion, with full spoilers. Hello, and welcome back to Part 2 of The Strangers and Aliens, coverage of Till We Have Faces, by Strangers and Aliens, the podcast. And I'm a podcaster named Ben, Ben Avery, and I'm here to talk once more about Till We Have Faces. And I've been joined by two other men who have faces, <laughs> and they are, they are Evan David and Steve McDonald. And they are introducing I, each other, which is fine. I like it. It's I totally like it. fine. It's It's okay. But... Yeah, Till We Have Faces, uh, part one. If you have not listened to part one yet, the previous episode, you probably would like, uh, probably a good idea to listen to that one. It's a little bit shorter, but it's uh, about kind of the historical background behind Till We Have Faces. What was it based on? Uh, how did C.S. Lewis get the idea to write it? Um, just some of some of the background stuff to the book when when did it happen in his career what was going on in his personal life how did uh joy davidman fit into that um and and just all all that kind of thing and you can find that episode at strangersandaliens.com slash faces one this episode you can find at strangersandaliens.com slash faces two see how we do that we like to make it easy for you this episode here is Really, the the discussion, the book discussion episode where we are going to be talking about things that resounded with us. Why do we like this book so much? What uh, we're going to we're going to touch on my quadrant with with style, character, plot and um, themes. And we'll probably start with style because it might be the most boring place to start. And then we'll work <laughs> our way to themes, which I think is probably the most exciting place to go. Of course, before we actually dive into this discussion, we do have two thank yous that we need to give because we've had two artists who have uh, contributed to this episode, and we need to make sure that we give them a shout out and a thanks before we move on. So, Steve, would you please begin the thanks? I would love to. The giving of thanks or the thanksgiving, <laughs> if you would. We would like to uh, give a heaping helping of Thanksgiving to uh, Heath McNeese, and you can find him at heathmcneesemusic.com. That's H-E-A-T-H-M-C-N-E-A-S-E music.com. And uh, what we have taken is from his album, The Weight of Glory, the second edition. Yeah, and he was very, very kind to give us permission Amazing. to use that. And um I, I do recommend not just the Weight of Glory second edition, but the first edition as well. The first edition is more of a folk feel, 
to the music. Mm -hmm. Second edition is the hip hop feel. It's a remix of those songs that he did in that original style. So, yeah. Evan, the the second thank you, if you would. Yes, we have art for this episode. If you've seen it on the Facebook page or on our website, um, it's done by, and I'm sorry if I butcher your name, I'm I'm really going to try, Bilqui (laughs) Evely, who is a professional uh, comic book artist and one of her, her favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and she's drawn just art in her spare time for fun of uh, some scenes from Till We Have Faces. And she, I emailed her, and she said we could use it, and she just wants to know uh, when we release the episode. So we will let her know, and we just want to give a big thank you. The art is fantastic. If you want to check her out, you can go to bilquievely.deviantart.com, and here's how you spell that, B-I-L-Q-U-I-S-E-V-E-L-Y.deviantart.com. Check out her stuff. It's pretty great. All right, and I, I – just one caveat there, and that is that DeviantArt, the website, does have things on it that are mm, – you can stumble upon things that you may not want to stumble upon. The yes, good thing is if true. you if you go to that website and you are not logged in, it does not give you – as much as possible does not give you those images. And there were none on her page that I saw when I went there, so I do feel safe sending people there. So thank you very much to both of them, and I just wanted to um, – give everyone who's listening a reminder of the contest that we have going on to win something from the Woodprint shop. It's a John Carter print. It's beautiful. And how can you win it? Well, it's very simple. Before December 1st, just uh, answer one simple question. Well, two simple questions. Who would you send a Christmas gift to in sci-fi and fantasy? And what would that gift be? What would you get for Superman? What would you get for Captain Kirk or for... um, Gobo Fraggle, you know, whoever, uh, send it to podcast at strangersandaliens.com or you can uh, leave us a voicemail at 1 804 37 alien, 1 804 372 We are not going to choose a winner based on the best answer. It will be a random drawing from all the answers that are in a hat, but there's going to be an episode coming up. That's the episode topic. And now, gentlemen, let's begin. Finally, we've talked about it for years. Yeah. And when Evan came on for his his first episode, he knew he was going to have to read it. And and so he did. And then we he read it this summer and I reread it this summer. And Steve, I'm not sure when or if you've reread it uh, most recently, but last week was it okay? And nice. And so then. One thing led to another. We had to cover this. We were away from each other for this. Uh, Steve had a big busy time in his life that took him away for a little while. We, we had to work around that. And then um, we went to record and we couldn't record because we had uh, technological issues going on. And it was just all sorts of stuff that happened that conspired against us. It was rigged. <laughs> but now we're here. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) We're here. We're recording the episode. I know there are people out there who have been listening to Strangers and Aliens for a long time who have been waiting for this conversation. I know there are some of you who've actually read the book because of our recommendation and have now been waiting for the discussion about the book. And here we are. 
And, and before we dive into the story, I have another story I want to tell really quick. Go for I it. I like stories. So I'm at church tonight, and I'm walking down the hallway, and this lady from our church stops me and says, Evan, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and you were on it. And it was this one. And yeah. she she had just searched online. She wanted to listen to a podcast. She searched for like a Christian book podcast, and she randomly found our magic episode. Wow. And I was just happened to be on it. Cool. Yeah, yeah. She uh, she texted my wife and told her. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I can't remember who that was. It was Mrs. Wirt, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mrs. Wirt. Anyway, yeah. shout out Mrs. Wart because I told her to uh, to listen to this one because it was coming out very soon. So if you're listening, hi. <laughs> yeah, uh, her her kids are friends with my kids, and yeah, it's a good family. Yeah, her yeah. Uh, her daughter's in my uh, wife's small group at church. All right, so till we have faces is a book by C.S. Lewis. We have all read it. We all like it. And I, I I think now is just the time where we're going to pour on the praise, maybe. Maybe a little too much. I don't know. We'll see. But, um, yeah, ben, let's... I didn't like this book. <laughs> let's just jump in with the style, with how this book was written. This book is unique in yeah. C.S. Lewis's fiction for a handful of reasons, but the, mo the the one that's most noticeable to me is, is the the book that's written in the first person. This book is written as the main character's um, journal. Screed. <laughs> it's it's it honestly is the main character's um, case against the gods. Right. It, it's found footage. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, or it's something the main character has written and, and left behind. Uh, I wouldn't call it found footage because I well, think it's basically, it's, well, <laughs> yeah, it's basically like you, it's, it's as if she lived in the real world and you found this book in a basement and you just started reading it. I mean, it's not like it is, it's her, it's her journal. So you can read this whole thing without any sort of preface. Yeah. And still get into it, and it's it's just as if she was a real person. It's it's more like if if someone like was making their own little movie, and then they died, and then you found, you know, that it's it it's it's mm -hmm. to be seen. It it she wants this to be exhibited. It's not like you know. Oh, that's true. That's true. You know, family movies, and you know, and then you just you find those, and then you put them on Facebook or you know, or YouTube or something. Yeah. So it's a little different than found footage, but it, it's a, very much that sense where you're getting this thing that was found. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and then it ends mid sentence because <laughs> she dies while she's writing. Yes. I mean, oh, wow. We should have said the spoiler warning. Yeah, there will there'll be a spoiler warning in, you know, before the before the opening credits. So I'm not, I'm not going to worry about it right now. But um <laughs> She, and, I mean, this this book is is you know a couple of thousand years set in the past, so obviously she's dead by now. But she dies so, mid sentence. Well, now you have to play the spoiler thing. Uh, no, I don't because uh, again, it's no because it's it's in, it's before the opening credits. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, we've already warned Fine. them about spoilers. 
Fine. So, yeah, it's it, and it reminds me a little bit of of uh, the book of uh, I guess numbers, dude, Deuteronomy, uh, or whichever book it is where um, Moses has died and they bury him. Right, that's Deuteronomy, and and so Moses, who is said to have written the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, um, obviously couldn't write about the burial arrangements mm-hmm. from his funeral that they did. You know, and so right. um, some people think that jo- Joshua took up the pen and, and finished it up, or someone else. But right. um, but it ends here with I Arnum, priest of Aphrodite, save this roll and put it in the temple from the markings after the word might. We think the queen's head must have fallen forward on them as she died, and we cannot read them. The book was all written by Queen Oral of Glom, Glom, who was the most wise, just, valiant, fortunate, and merciful of all the princes known in our parts of the world. If any stranger who intends the journey to Greece finds this book, let him take it to Greece with him, for that is what she seems mostly to have desired. The priest who comes after me has it in charge to give up the book to any stranger who will take an oath to bring it into Greece." And to put it in the libraries there. And that was me adding that part about the libraries, but um <laughs> and to yeah. make sure the librarian keeps it under wraps and makes multiple copies to hand out to small children. I, I, I added that part. Yeah. Yeah. So this thing Evan, I, do you want to add anything? <laughs> the end. <laughs> so it's interesting though, because as she's writing this, uh whenever you have a first person account automatically it's it's an unreliable narrator you know because usually mm-hmm. as a person you you tend to want to put yourself in the best light possible she doesn't do that in this book she definitely does include details that make her look weak or make her look angry or make her look petty um but it's all part of her her argument against the gods Mm. And, she's very open and honest yeah and it's it's all part of her misunderstanding yep yeah she's whole. definitely coming at it from a slanted view yes it's not the correct yeah. one it's it's her view of the world and how right. things are and and so, so she's including you know the people around her and and talking about them and uh not necessarily flattering about them but you know she's not writing it for them and she is writing this book as her defense of what she it's almost like Job in that regard too, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's her defense against, you know, you have treated me wrong. You have, uh, you've taken everything from me, even though she's queen and, and has everything that, that someone in her place in her, her nation could have. Um, so yeah, it's, what? Hmm. What really impresses me about it, and we're talking about the first person narrative, is like we're we're talking about it just now and saying, you know, she wrote this or she comes at it this way. This is written by a dude, like a sixty-year-old dude. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and it just comes off so naturally. It's as if this girl, this teenage girl, and then an older girl writes this book. And granted, he had help from his uh, his lady friend as we talked about in the last episode, but still it's so good. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, when, when people questioned uh, CS Lewis about writing books for children, you know, they said, well, you know, you don't have any children. How can, how do you think you, you can write books for children? And his, his excuse was, well, 
I used to be one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> nice. so, you know, he could sort of draw on that, but here he's writing as a female and he never was. So to pull that off is, uh, you know, in, in some ways it's epic, you know, to be able to pull that off. And it, when I read this book, I, I didn't think to myself, you know, oh, this is a guy saying this, but it's in a girl's voice or, you know, I, I never had that filter. It, it was immediately you were immersed into Orwell's head yep. and her thoughts and her and it's her, 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 her. All the it way is through. so it's so deep and nuanced and just thorough. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a real person. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what makes it a good book. And that's what makes him an excellent writer. And, yes. and you're right, Steve. When I read it, I wasn't thinking, oh. He's in the head of this this girl character. It was just, oh, this is an amazing story. And it wasn't until later on when I was reading stuff about the book where they're talking about, yeah, and think about this. And I'm just, oh, huh. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Um, yeah, same with me. But it, it is just – it's very compelling. And uh, it's one of those things like you know, we, we love Tony Stark. And and now with uh, Stephen Strange, where he you know he's he's arrogant and and all that, and and this is a character who, honestly, w- some of her flaws make her quite unlikable, but she's always compelling, and she's right. you know she's not she's not completely unlikable. I mean, she has her good qualities, but at the same time, uh, that makes her a, a well-rounded character. This is not yeah. someone who is uh, you know a Mary Jane. Or not Mary Jane, Mary Sue. She's not a Mary Sue. She's also not a Mary Jane. Uh, yeah, I was, I was she, wondering where you were going with yeah, that. Not, not at all. <laughs> she doesn't come in and say, face it, Tiger, you've hit the jackpot or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but she's also not a Mary Sue where she's just this kind of perfect character who who literally could say, I am without you know, flaw. And so why are you treating me like this? Why are you... Why have you taken the only thing, the only good thing from my life? But what helps is that there is a character like that who does have the right perspective on things. And so you can kind of counter, counter, think about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) um, You know, she's expressing all these false views and these clearly selfish and skewed views. Um, But then you have Psyche who's doing the opposite. Right, but you you sort of think that you, that uh, it's weird because it, in like in the first Captain America movie, you know, uh, the Red Skull is saying this stuff that is crazy, but it's true. You know, he's talking about all this mystic stuff and how the you know the the you know the Reich will rise again because of the magic of this and this that and the other thing, and you're like that's insane, but in the context of the movie, it's true. Mm-hmm. So at some level. You have to say to yourself, Red Skull really has a good point here, you know, <laughs> and even though he's evil and he's on the bad guy side and et cetera, et cetera, he has a good point, you know, it, and it's it's not like he's he's insane. He's dealing with something that is really true. And Psyche, you know, OK, you're going into the mountain and being with the mountain God and you're like, that's crazy stuff. But you know what? It's true, and yeah. you can tell it's true because of the other stuff that's being written. Right. But, I think so, mis- but here's the thing: she, it's not. I mean, that's later. Even early on, she is this pure and perfect person. 
Yeah. Right. And that's what I was saying, Steve. I wasn't saying that Psyche's view is skewed. I was saying Aurora's view is skewed. And Psyche's right. the one who's speaking the, the truth. Yeah. That's what I was yeah. saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was I was just putting that in the context of uh of you know the red skull just in a in a good way instead of in the, the negative way that the red yes. skull is well and you do love the red skull you know talking about the sisters though you have this this kind of triad here where you have um uh, psyche who is the the youngest of the three daughters she yeah. is um beautiful she is um she's kind she she's that that kind of perfect person she's selfless completely selfless and then you have the second daughter, uh, Redevil, Redival. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you could Redival. read it. You could read it, Redevil. But um, <laughs> Red Devil, <laughs> who is totally. I mean, if if Psyche is completely selfless, Redival, Redevil, however you want to say Redival. it, however you Redival. do say it, um, we're not going to correct each other on pronunciation anymore. Um, <laughs> because because I'm going to say things wrong the entire time, and it is going that to is get true. very old for everyone. Uh, but she is completely self-absorbed right? and it's not that she is intentionally evil or bad. She just is only thinking of herself. And then in between them, you have the oldest daughter who is ugly and who is, um, you know, completely, I don't, I wouldn't say she's exactly in the middle of those two, but, but she does fall somewhere in the middle. And mm -hmm. who she's the one who has the complaint against the gods because she is she loves her sister Psyche so much, but she can't stand her other sister because she's insipid and because she is vain and because she is only looking out for herself and only caring about herself and only and wanting because she's beautiful. Yeah, well, that's true. The second daughter, uh, Redevil, is uh, beautiful, um, but it's a different kind of beauty. Mm hmm. And and so you have this kind of triad there. And there's a lot of that kind of thing going on where you have kind of oral in the center of things. And then you have these other things on, that are part of her life, but are coming in and and kind of taking these counterpoints like her father and the fox and the priest who are these kind mm -hmm. of three things that are kind of around her, just different um, aspects of the world or aspects of, of worldviews. Yeah. And. And then you have uh, the the captain of the 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 Bardia guy, who's mm -hmm. her her friend and who serves her and everyone. Um, but then you, and along with him, kind of the opposite there is the priest. You know who these are both people yeah. she has to work with in government when she's queen, and and they they both have these different relationships with her and and so she's kind of the, I mean obviously she's the central character and all these other characters are kind of floating around her. And and just giving us glimpses into her as she reacts to them, but uh, yeah, her her sisters, I mean, those are the most important ones, and and the wow. closest ones, and the ones that early on are the ones that we measure her by because mm -hmm. we we get to see them and their weaknesses and their strengths. So, we talked about style. Did you want to say anything more about style that we missed? I think we've missed a ton, but <laughs> well, I mean, this to be a ten-hour episode, and, and we don't. And I mean, we, we've talked about the big things, though. I mean, we'd have to really maybe dig in uh, because I, I mean, the the narrative style it's it's not a very exciting book as far as 
the action that's going on. This book focuses on the emotion. And this book focuses on her reaction to the action. And uh, that's another thing that just kind of naturally comes out of that first person style. But, you know, she she goes to war and and we really don't get much about it. You know, we get a couple paragraphs that kind of describe what happened and how she was a hero. So, quote unquote, Um, but she doesn't spend her time there. I think it's interesting because it does go into emotion, but it does go into logic. And she's trying to make sense logically of this stuff with the the stoicism of the fox. And she's trying to go into it emotionally with the, you know, the, the stuff of the priest. And we're seeing the two sides that, that a true argument for Christianity, a, a true um, address to the human soul, if you will, uh, it, it, those are the two ditches that we can fall into when we're trying to talk to people and trying to convince them of the gospel, of the truth. When we try to convince them of it, the logic of it, you know, Christianity is true because X, Y, and Z. So now that you know X, Y, and Z, you must believe in Christianity. Well, the thing is, if you argue someone into Christianity by logic, someone else is going to be smarter than you. Mm. And someone else is going to be able to argue them out of it with a better argument. So it's a ditch that we fall into. Now, when we go to the other extreme and it's all emotion and we say, oh, but don't you want to become a Christian? Your your mom was a Christian and, you know, she <laughs> went to heaven and your grandmother and, you know, and, and you're, you're pulling on the emotion strings of this person. And it's going to be like, oh, OK, well, I guess I'll be a Christian. And then someone else is going to come along and say, yeah, but. Your dad was an atheist and, you know, he's probably in hell partying it up. And, and all of a sudden, another emotional thing will come along and be able to drag them away. You know, so it's another ditch that we can fall into. We don't want to do that and try to, to have that as the basis of our argument. And it's really telling that the, the, the dedication of the book, you know, it, when, it, you, when you have the book at the very beginning – it has that little line under it that says, love is too young to know what conscience is. You know, love carries us through our early lives until we can understand that love informs, you know, like our inner faculties, the, the parts of us that are our conscience. Love is too young to know what conscience is. We address the conscience because that's where we know things. We know that there's a good and an evil. We know that there's something out there. You know, these things, they're written on our on our soul. So we address the conscience when we're trying to discuss the gospel with someone. And we don't fall into those ditches. Yes, it will go into a little bit of logic because you sort of need logic to put it all together. And yes, it should go into an emotional response because becoming a Christian or becoming aware of the spiritual reality should have an emotional response on people. But we don't aim for that. We aim for the conscience and it bleeds over into that. Rightly yeah. so. And, and this is where, you know, the fox, the the philosopher from, from Greece, uh, who is – a slave, but who is also her teacher. Uh, mm-hmm. He is all about the uh, the logic. He's all about the the right. Greek philosophy. Uh, the 
the materialism of the world. You know, mm-hmm. th- th- things don't exist beyond what we can, what we experience here and the, the physical. And, yeah. and then at the end, when there's these, this kind of psychedelic dream part where he <laughs> comes to her and you just see the emptiness of it, uh, of a life of logic devoid of, of emotion. And real he realizes he, he was wrong, you know, yeah. there is more. And, you know, and, and then that's, I mean, that's a turning point for her as well. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we should maybe talk about the plot just a little bit in case people haven't read it in a while, but the, the whole story revolves around how Psyche had to be given as a sacrifice to the shadow brute, the, um, one of the gods, because there's, there's a, a drought in the land, I believe. And, and then, uh, no, no, no. It's because she, uh, went out and everybody worshiped her because yeah, they thought was, she was Aphrodite. There was a disease and That's she right. went out to, to touch them. And some of the diseases went away because they, they looked at her as, as a, a goddess. Some of the diseases went away, but some people still got sick and died. So they said, instead of her being the, um, you know, this, this goddess that can take away diseases. Now she becomes the accursed capital a accursed. And because right. she's the accursed one, she's the one that has to be the sacrifice. Well, they take well, and it's the... because, sorry. And it's because that, uh, the priest guy came and is like, look, this is like blasphemy. So there's that. Yeah. Right. Well, they, they take her and they, they, they give her as a sacrifice and or wants to go and see the body and she's gone. And, and find out she's she's alive and she has been taken to this place and and Earl visits her there and sits down with her and um she says this this glen that i'm living in this valley or this this hillside is look at the palace that i get to live in taste this this fruit taste this wine and and Earl can't see any of it and so she thinks that her sister has gone mad mm-hmm. and her sister says, I, I'm married. You know, the shadow brute is not what he said he was. I, I don't know exactly what he is because he won't let me look on him. But I, you know, I, I trust him. And she, and so she convinces her sister to, to take a look, look at his face, you know, and, and see what he looks like after he comes to bed and comes to sleep. And and then there's this wonderful scene where that has happened that night and she gets cast away. Psyche gets cast away. And, um, and, and that sets off things with, with Aurora where she's, she saw a glimpse of the palace and she's trying to decide what did I really see? Is my sister the liar or is my sister the lunatic? Um, kind of getting into that logic of, you know, Christ saying who he was is either lying or he's crazy or he's telling the truth and he actually is the Lord. Right. Um, and that's where you, what you get with Psyche here is, you know, is she lying or what? Um, she leaves. She's gone. Uh, Aurora ends up becoming the, the queen of her kingdom. And and she writes all this down because she is complaining to the gods that they, they did not – they were not, should not have been able to do what they did to her. And and then she has this crazy dream at the end, where, but it's not a dream. But <laughs> but is it? And it, it turns out that she actually um, – Psyche has gone through all the, the labors that she was supposed to do in, in the original myth and that um, Oral, Oral was a, a part of those and able to help her with that. And, um, and so not quite a happy ending, but 
Well, it is if you think about it in one way. Yeah. You know, she she comes to a full, like, repentant understanding of the truth. Unfortunately, she dies there. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's know? the thing is there's there's not there's not much more to it than as far as the actual events. You know, there's there's lots of thematic stuff to it, but right. um, it took her her whole life to get there. Right. And and that that's unfortunate. I mean, and so. Yeah, but there's a lot of cool stuff going on to get us there. Yes, um, it's very fascinating to read. Very immersive. Um, and it's yeah, just and it, it's, it's just it's, very cool. It's a thorough uh, dismantling of this the whole mindset of the you know the the logic based uh, Fox system and also the the uh, the, the feelings based um, yeah, the ungut system and you know ungut is is this stone that they worship basically and it's faceless and and it's, it has no real form but the the odd thing about it is that if you look at it, it seems to have these these faces. What does it say? It's, it says, um, one can make out ruinous faces in the stone, it says. But it has no head, no hands, no face. And it's, it's this weird-looking thing. It's, it's ugly. And you, you, in a lot of ways, when I was reading it, I'm like, it's sort of like Oruo. And oh, then, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and then during the story, Oral takes it as as if it is her, mm-hmm. you know, and and it becomes this odd thing where it's it's a it's a symbol for Aphrodite, but it's not this beautiful, you know, naked woman on a half shell that we think of as Aphrodite. It's this stone, you know, and it's it's not it's it, it's it shows I think it shows Aphrodite in her um, non-glorious uh, effect. You know, when, when we see Aphrodite in her glory, we see her and she's beautiful and she's wonderful and she's attended by these, you know, uh, Cupid things and all these little things. And it has that sense to it. Stripped of her glory, what is Aphrodite? She's just a personification of something that is all too human just sexuality you know it's like you strip away the glory and oh she's the goddess of love and all this stuff and what does it come down to she's just representative of human sexuality i mean it's it's kind of gross you know when you really if you want to extrapolate to it but it's it's just a way of confusing the the mystery of the divine and trying to put it in a, a sense that humans can understand it. You know, it's like, well, what is mysterious and seems like it's divine. It's, you know, oh, well, you know, sexual relations because it's, it's you know, X, X, Y, and Z and Ooh, wow. And, and, but when you come down to it, it's so much more than that, that when you strip it away, you get this ugly stone. And Orwell is, you know, so ugly that it, she puts a veil over her face for most of the, the book. You know, she's so not good to look at. You don't want to look at her. I mean, at one point she, she says, you know, oh, I'll be the 
I'll be the the, uh, the 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 sacrifice. And her father just walks her over to a mirror and says, "Do you think the gods want that?" Yeah. And it's like this this sense of like, wait a minute, you know, she's that hideous that you know it, it goes into it a little bit in the story, but it, it, there's no picture. It's not like we see how bad she is. And that's one of the the graces of a written novel outside of the the uh, the the screen. If if this were filmed, they would have to find someone who looks ugly or make up someone to look ugly. And you know, sometimes ugly can be attractive. You know, we've all seen someone who's like you know so homely that they're cute or something like that. And it would rob it of its actual power. You know, I, I'm reminded of uh, Lord of the Rings when we see uh, Strider and they're like, you know, should we trust him? And uh, I think it's Frodo says, you know, well, I would always imagine something evil would look fair and seem foul, but he looks foul and seems fair. But he's a handsome guy, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, yeah, but why didn't, why didn't they get someone who looked worse to play him you know it, it, they can it, get away with that though because it's a it's a small part of of a much larger thing you couldn't right. get away with that here because right. the whole thing just hinges on her physical attribute of right. especially specifically her face yes and you know her sister her younger her well the not the youngest sister but redival she loses her beauty uh mm -hmm. she gets married and has children and, you know, slowly over time just becomes middle-aged, you know, and, and, be, and she, so she loses that youthful beauty that she used to have, that she used to trade for, uh, affection. And now she has the affection of her children. And, and this is where, I guess in, in that sense, we, we get into some of the four loves stuff that this right. book, now this book is really a, a accumulation of all of C.S. Lewis's writings. I mean, from the, the myths that are pointing to the truth where you have, mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, you, you know, this is, this is happening before Christ, but there's something of a, an echo, a future echo of, of what is going to come that, that, um, that Cupid actually kind of refers to. And, right. and then you also have um, the four loves and and the different loves that C.S. Lewis describes in there, they are on full display here. Yeah. Um, yeah. The mere Christianity. The mere yeah, Christianity. The weight of, well, the weight and, of glory. Well, the mere Christianity part um, comes out of the what you're talking about, Steve. With the, um, you know, it's not just logic. You can't argue mm -hmm. someone into Christianity. It's a, it's about the you know the heart as well and the emotion as well. And I, I think a lot of times people kind of. They're not being dismissive of it, but they look at mere Christianity as just this logical book about where Christianity comes from and what it is. You know, it's, this is why Christianity works is because A plus B equals C. <laughs> if C equals D, then A plus B equals D. And that's right. not – I mean mere Christianity has some of that in it. There are definitely a lot of if-thens. Uh, and, and there is logic in the book, mm -hmm. but you know, it, this is not C.S. Lewis breaking Christianity down into a mathematical equation. Right. And, 
even people who appreciate and like the book, I think sometimes describe it in that kind of dismissive way, but, but it's, it's here as well. And, you know, just logic without, you know, I think someone described it this way. I might be taking it and twisting it to make it work in my own mind. So I might've stolen this or I might have misrepresented it. But if you think of a, a human as a train, you know, emotion is kind of the, the fuel emotion is what pushes the train and moves it forward. But then it's, it's logic that, that act as the tracks mm. and, and that give it guidance, give that passion guidance into the right places. And without the track, you're going, you're not going to go anywhere or you're going to go someplace dangerous. Like it's going to hurt people or something. And without you, without your engine, without the fuel, you're, you're just going to sit on the tracks and, and not go anywhere. And, and that's, I think what you have here is, is that, especially again, talking about that duality between uh, the Fox and the priest where the one is just into the mystery Mm-hmm. And and into the the uh, the spirituality, but it's a spirituality that does not come from any kind of truth, right? And then you have the other who is into the truth, and into the visible and the seen, but will not d- step into the mystery, right? And it's more facts than truth. Yeah, you know, you yes. get you get these facts, and they're they're disembodied. They don't they don't make up a whole. But they're facts, and he's looking for the truth. He has a piece of the truth, just as as much as the priest has a piece of the truth. You know, it's, it's salvation or you know, atonement comes through blood somehow. So, hmm, how can we try to affect that? Well, let's kill something and see if it works. You know, <laughs> because- well, it doesn't help that it does work. You know, the, yeah, the disease, the, the, the drought, uh, you know, they start having great crops after that, you know, they <laughs> they start doing better after she is given to the gods. Yeah. But it's, it's happenstance. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a logical fallacy, you know, just because something happens after something else doesn't mean that that first thing caused that second thing, you know, but that's how superstition is. That's how these things work. That's how all these little, you know, it's, it's, that's why you whistle when you go past a cemetery. That's why you knock on wood. It's because it worked before. So maybe it'll work again, you know, and that's where you get magic comes in, you know, like real world magic. I'm not talking about literary magic, just people do things over and over until it works. And then they take that thing that works and they call it magic. You know, or they take that thing that works and and they, because it worked the first time, well, it's got to work the second time. And in the real world, I think that's a way for demons to, to come in and say, I will work with this person. I will work in this system and pretend like these things mean something to me. So oh, you're standing in a magic circle. Well, I can't touch you because you're in the magic circle. Well, it's because they want this person to think that for their own reasons. They could do whatever they wanted to. Magic circles don't hold back demons. You know, that's not how this whole thing works. But demons play the game. And because that happens, 
it builds this magical system. It keeps them in that mindset. And the same thing with superstitions, the same thing with, you know, all these little things that we do, horoscopes, you know, astrology, silly things. It just, to us, they're silly. But some people are stuck in these systems. And when I say some people, I mean billions of people are stuck in systems that don't work, but they seem to work because something worked before, so it must work again. Yeah, well, and And, it's not just because it worked. It's also because there's a natural human hunger for mm -hmm. meaning and for spirituality. That's huge, yes. I mean, and, and so that's also something that can be preyed upon. Yeah. To, you know, to draw in uh, to, to those, those systems like you're talking about. And it's not yeah, just those systems. It's meaning. also, it's also just systems of, well, just, just logic in general and, yeah. and, you know, to, to find meaning there. Yeah. And yeah. looking for meaning is, is definitely what, what it comes down to. That's um, huge. Yeah. You know, and, and so, but you, you had mentioned before about how, you know, the law is written on our hearts. I mean, that's, that, that, again, we know there's more. Mm-hmm. We know that there, you know, and if we if we don't know that, if we we take into like the fox, where it's just this physical world, um, you know, it, we lose, uh, we, we kind of lose the right to talk about meaning. Uh, to that, yeah. And and we, you and I had talked about this before. I think I think it was you and I, Evan. Uh, I can't remember what podcast it was on though, or what episode, but where we talked about. Um, how JMS, J. Michael Straczynski in Babylon 5, and, and, and in life, too, keeps bringing up the idea that we are made of star stuff. Yes. You know, we are made of the stuff of stars. And then when you start thinking about it, let's really break that down. Everything <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, we are so special because here you are, and all these things happen to bring you here to this moment. All the star stuff has created this thing that is you and that makes you special and that makes you <laughs> something that has meaning and value in this world except right. so is everything else yeah so is yeah. everything else is made of that and yeah. it just if you're looking for meaning and and we are we do that's an innate human trait that that everyone has anyone who thinks therefore they are they are thinking about what am i and yeah. and what meaning what do mean? i have so it yeah. and know. it's and you see that played out in you know the incredibles you know everyone is <laughs> is, is special if you everyone know, is you're special yeah. just like everyone else yeah. and um you know uh what am i trying to think of I'm trying to think of something i think it's yeah uh evolutionary biology where it's like, well, we're the pinnacle, but the next step is also going to be the pinnacle. Hmm. So, you know, every, you're, we're, we're special. We're these special things that are special just like everything else because everything else has got to this point too. You know, it's like it, it, it robs the meaning of the word special, you know, of a species. You know, we are of a species if we're special. You know, we, we are, we're singular and when we say we're singular, just like everything else, it robs the entire word of its meaning. Yeah. And, and there's some truth to that, though. I mean, we are singular if we're all star stuff because it's just one thing, star stuff. 
and and we are <laughs> and we are we are all special, you know, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. But that's because something world. is giving value to us. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's not just we're claiming value. And that's what JMS is doing. He's claiming value. He is okay. saying we have value because this and and whereas Christianity if it's not true, yes, we are claiming value, I guess. But Christianity yeah, says God has given us value. Yeah, and, God and, has and, created us. And, you know, we are special, but it's not just me. And this is kind of getting to that weight of glory stuff, you know, where it's mm-hmm. not just I am special because I am me in this world. It's I am special and you are not because of any... Uh, value that I give you, but because God has given you value. Yeah. And, and I need to are, treat you like that. Exactly. And and we, in, in, our, in and of ourselves, are worthless. You know, what is it that we, in and of ourselves, that can give back to God? Filthy rags, you know, and the Bible even, you know, mm-hmm. goes a little worse. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, dig into the etymology of that. But the thing is, <laughs> that's what we can give to God. And that's what it is in us that is, I mean, we give what we are basically, you know, so that's, that's what, what, what we have going for us, but God makes us special by choosing us before time, you know, and it's that wonderful thing that we can't possibly do. You know, this is, this is why Christianity is the fairest religion. If you're trying to argue it and trying to figure out which one is the fairest religion, Christianity is the fairest religion because in every other belief system, every other belief system, and believe me, I have searched to find this truth. Every other belief system, there's an element of works righteousness. That means something you have to do you personally, and it can be something really small, that you work a little bit of your salvation. And it can be something really big, and it can be something really tiny, but it's something that you do to affect part of your salvation. With Christianity, we all have the exact same chance of going to heaven. Zero. Zero. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And there's nothing we can do to affect that chance. It's the fairest religion of all because it relies 100% on Jesus doing all the work. We can't do anything because what would happen if we set up a religion? And this is what happens. People set up a religion and they say, well, we have to give people something to do to, you know, <laughs> to, to work it out. So how about if we just said clap three times and believe in our system and you get to go to our heaven? Well, that's great. Until you come to a person born with no hands, (laughs) then this person cannot get into the system, even though they believe it to the utmost, just because they can't fulfill your one little rule. Well, Steve, then it's easy. You just amend the rules and change everything. You can. But what happens when you say all you have to do is, uh, okay, uh, thump your stumps together or whatever. I don't, I don't mean to be in, insensitive, but I'm saying, you know, if you don't have hands, well, what do you have? You know, bump those together. Okay, well, what happens to the person born with no arms? Okay, well, just wiggle your torso. What happens to the person who's born paralyzed? 
Well, blink your eyes. What happens to the person born with no eyes? And it just gets to a point where there's someone in the world that can completely believe in your system and cannot get to your heaven just because they're incapable of doing something. And that is horrible. In a real true sense, it is horror because that person believes something to be absolutely positively true and cannot get to it. With Christianity, it's all fair. No one has a chance. It's all Christ, 100%. And that's the beauty of it. The beauty of it. But let's talk about the ugly of this, where you have, it, in, in the book, that is, the, the ugly of it. <laughs> oh, you're um, talking about me. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was, but <laughs> I, I, I quickly changed track so we could talk about the book. And I was just like, well, how can I save myself from not insulting Steve? To, okay, so I'm, let's talk about Go the ahead. ugly. Though. Let's talk about the <laughs> let's talk about the, the the mystery and and the uh, the ugliness here because that's that's one of the interesting things is you, you have this idea of beauty and this idea of of ugly, um, and and it, a lot of it is dependent on physical attributes and that kind of thing. But then you also have just kind of the spiritual ugliness and the things that uh, the priest of Ungat has them do you know with with sacrifice the human sacrifice and and the um the rituals that they go through that involve you know going into the dark places and 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 coming out and and that and the the one interesting thing is i believe it's it's psyche not psyche it's it's uh oral who who talks about how um all of the you know the holy places are are dark yeah and and you, you know and covered and uh, it's you know, the priest who talks about that and but then you, you know it's not just the the fake holy places that are like that but cupid himself the shadow brute himself yeah uh yep. is is covered and and part of that is because you know we we can't handle it, it that's actually yeah. kind of where the where the title comes from is again going back to moses where Moses, you know, he was able to look at uh, God's the, the back of God as he walked by and then was so glorious. Moses had you know, the glory of God kind of stuck on his face and, until it faded away. People couldn't look at him. He had to cover his face. Mm. And uh, so that just reminded me of, of that idea there. Uh, but then so you, you've got the shadow brute who has to be covered and who is real. And, and that's again where we're kind of getting into the that, the the title, where it's how can you know how can they meet us face to face, till we have faces, right? You know, right. and 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 how does that happen? How do you get yeah, how, your, how do you get your face? You know, how can they answer our questions until our questions make sense? You know, yeah. it's it's like you can't say you know is is yellow square or round. It's it's unanswerable. It's it's like you don't it's, even try to do it. Uh, man, I'm I'm kind of blowing it because I was going to do a video about this, and maybe I still will be <laughs> able to. But it's it's the it's the old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, life, the universe, and everything. Right? The answer is forty two, <laughs> right? Well, okay. So you build the computer, and they build this computer that's going to give them the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And it takes them a million years to build. It, it then thinks about the question for a million years. And then when it's done, they're having the ceremony. All right, give it to us. What's the answer to life, the universe, and everything? And the answer is 42. 
And they're right. just, what? And he says, <laughs> well, here's the deal. You're, you, you don't know the question. Right. You know, and, and, and that's what you and have. So they build a computer to, to, to find out the question. Figure out the question. <laughs> which gets destroyed. Um, which gets yes. destroyed just, you know, like five minutes before the answer is ready to be spit right. out or whatever. Exactly. Um, it, it just happens to be the planet Earth. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and we can talk about all that later in another episode or something. But um, the video I wanted to do was to kind of tie in that question of they, they don't have the right question. Going back to Job, where you know he's he's asking these questions of God, but God is basically throwing the questions back at him and saying, "Okay, so were you there? You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's basically the 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 answer to the question of the problem of play, of pain, which another C.S. Lewis book, but the the answer to that question from the book of Job is God saying you're asking the wrong question, and the answer is, "Don't worry, I got it, I got you, <laughs> it's, it's okay." You know, yeah. it's, it's going to be okay. And now then Job, of course, gets all the stuff returned back to him that he had already lost. Not that he got the exact same things. These were different children that he had in a new family, uh, not a new wife, but, but new children for, for the family. And, um, you know, and that's not what God is saying. God's not saying, Hey, don't worry all these things that you're going through. You're going to be rewarded after you go through it. That's not at all what it is but the answer to job's question is going through all that terrible loss god doesn't tell him hey yeah you know before all this happened uh the devil came to me and he challenged me with you and and he does not give the answer we get the answer as the readers we get that part of the answer anyway but job gets this answer of hey man i was there when all this was made because i made it yeah. And don't worry, man. I got gotcha. you. Yep. Yep. But that's the the wonderful part of it is that we can't even ask a question. We can't meet the the god face to face until we have a face. But then the question that we need to ask has already been answered in the question. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing where she's, she's reading her grievance and she's saying, you know, psyche was mine, mine. Don't you understand what the word mine is? And it's like, I understand that the word mine is a possessive word, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it's like, Anyone reading this and understanding what she's actually saying would just like smack their own face. Well, but that's what and, happens but, when she reads her yeah, thing. Right. She yeah. she reads it and reads it and reads it and realizes, wait a minute, my complaint against the gods here is kind of stupid. <laughs> With un- when she gets understanding, yeah, she realizes my you know it's like when she, once she gets the answer to her question, she realizes. Okay, they say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but Ugh. I kind of have one, you know, because she gets the real question. Right. She doesn't necessarily get the answer, I guess. She gets the question. And again, going yeah. back to 42, which I'm 42 this year, by the way. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that, but I'm going to be rereading. I don't know how this is going to work out for Strangers and Aliens, but I'm going to be rereading all the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books 
and watching the TV series again, listening to the radio series again. I don't know what it's going to mean. There's going to be something that's going to come out of it in some sort of episode or two somewhere. But this year of 42 for me is is jumping back into that one. I've enjoyed revisiting Till We Have Faces so much, though. I think I've read this every uh, – high school on, I've read this once in every, like, uh, period of my life. Read yeah, it in high it's... school, read it in college, read it out of college when I was newly married, read it when my children um, were young – and, and now I'm, I guess I'm, I could, you could say I'm probably still in that same phase with, with the children phase. You know, I, I'm not an empty nester yet or anything like that, but, um, but yeah, I, and every single time it uncovers more for me, but this time around, there's so much distance between the last time I read this book and this time it was, there was a ton of discovery. Yeah. I, I was able to read it for the first time again in some ways. I knew where the plot was going and I knew what was going to happen to all the characters, but I'd forgotten so much about the details of getting there and the relationships and uh, just the, the beauty of the book. So, yeah, I'm glad you guys made me read it. (laughs) I really enjoy, I think it's my favorite uh, C.S. Lewis fiction book for sure. Oh, it absolutely is mine. It, it absolutely is mine. It has been. It, that's not a discovery I made this time around. Um, it's so deep, so rich. I mean, it, every single page has something that you could quote, or something that you could pull out, or something that you say, "Yes." You know, I'm just flipping through it right now, and I'm just like, you know, it's it's just it's amazing. You know, the king's dead. That uh, a straight thrust and, and cut in the leg that would have killed him too. I am the queen. I'll kill Orwell too. And you're just like, wait a minute, what did she just say? <laughs> you know, she's she's going to kill herself. But no, that's not what it means. You know, she's the queen now. She's not Orwell. And they're like, wait a minute, what does that mean to the whole, you know, and it resets the story and you yeah. want to read it again. And it's like all these little things and, you know, Fox's little things that he says and, and the the way that the, the, the priest talks about, uh, um you know, whatever it was he's talking about, Greek wisdom, you know, and all the, the holy things, they dazzle our eyes and flow in and out of one another like eddies on a river. And nothing that is said clearly can be said truly about them. Holy places are dark places. And it's just like, you know, holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. And you're just like, what's going on? It's just so thick and rich. And it's like he pulled apart and dismantled all his other books keeping all the the christian sense to it and the logic of it and the emotion of it and and the and the the conscience level baseness of it and just poured it into this book and it's just it it's amazing yeah. it's absolutely amazing it, i think i read this book as you know as i was reading his his fiction first and you know i read the 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 chronicles of narnia and and i think maybe even after this, uh, but you know, this was one of the first things I read by him. So I was like, wow, that's a really deep book. He's really got a lot of stuff going on. And then I was introduced to his, his deeper actual, you know, theological works. And let's just say that the nonfiction stuff, cause this is, is about as deep as it gets. And I got used to those. So I have let's see, this huge bank of, of stuff that now I have in my head. And now I go back to this book 
and it's just like what I said. It's like he took all that stuff and just squeezed it, and it's, it's oozing all out of this book. It's amazing. It's it's incredible to have that perspective, to have it as one of the first books I've read by him, and then to go back and reread it again. Amazing. Well, and I, I, I'm kind of there with you. This was probably – it was not the last of his fiction that I read, but it was close to it. Uh, I think Pilgrim's Regress was the the last book of his fiction that I read, and that was just because it was a harder book to find. And right. and I, I think I came across it at some random Christian bookstore at some mall like on, on a trip or something like that. It wasn't <laughs> in my usual haunts where I would go and look for books. And – but this was close to it. I mean, I read I read his Chronicles of Narnia, and then the Space Trilogy was given to me, um, right? Grade seven, no, grade eight. I read the Space wow. Trilogy, and 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 then um, you know Screwtape Letters. I tried to read uh, after Chronicles of Narnia, but I couldn't get right. into. And then, but then in high school, I was able to read it, and it really just really got into just the subversiveness of it. And it, it's right. fun to read something that's both subversive. And holy, you know, where it's, and, and I, I do know people who really don't like the book, but. Right. Cause it's a demon talk. Right. Right. But to read, I mean, when you, when you read it in the context of what he's saying and, and all that kind of thing, it's, it's a completely different thing, but yeah. um, it's, and so this was, I think after, after that. And, and then uh, I had read some of his, his nonfiction and really enjoyed it, especially in high school where I was really starting to explore things and trying to figure things out for myself and not just, right. um, okay, well, this is what I was told and I'm supposed to believe, but I'm seeing all these people who don't believe it. And, right. and what does that mean for them? And uh, why, why would they be able to hear the things I'm hearing and, and not accept it? You know? And, and so then mm. I'm looking into all those things and, and, you know, then the other big question I'm asking is, like, what about the people who don't hear what I'm hearing and, and all that? And so as I'm just exploring and developing, uh, you know, the, the, my worldview and, and also developing my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And these are books that are, are helping, uh, you know, to understand things. And, and so when I first read this, though, I was not getting all the huge big ideas from it. I know I wasn't. Um, but... I think I got some of them. I think I did get some of them when I first read it because that was, again, in high school where I was really enjoying discovering things for the first time. Like, oh, my goodness, this book here, um, especially the sci-fi that I was reading that wasn't from Christians, you know, and I'm just, oh, there's 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 meaning here. Oh, there's there, he's saying one thing but doing another. And then, oh, Twilight Zone is not just twist endings, but it's also, <laughs> um, you know, it's also social commentary. And, right. and Star Trek, same thing. And, and yeah. of course, in Star Trek was I start realizing, oh, some of the social commentary here and some of the, you know, metaphors and stuff that they're throwing at me, they're kind of godless. And, yeah. oh, interesting. Okay. So we uh, have the episode in the original series where they're talking about the son of God. Yeah. The son, the son, not the son, S-U-N, but the son, S-O-N. And then yeah. we go into the next generation, and it's they finally evolved past the need to believe in a god, you know. It's right? Like, yeah. And, yeah. And then Q shows up. And so, but I'm, I'm <laughs> but I, I'm, I read this when I was in that phase of my life where I was discovering these things, and yeah. and that's that's the first time, and I don't remember the discovery. 
I'll, I'll throw that out there right now. I don't remember what I discovered as I was reading this book, but it struck with me. It stuck with me and struck me and caused me um, to want to come back to it over and over again. I don't even remember what I got out of the book. And I just read it like a couple months ago. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't take notes? No, I didn't take any notes. I was I was sucked into the story. I wanted to finish it. Um, but what did I you think? I, was the story convincing and fulfilling to you? Oh, yeah. It was great. And I can tell that there's meaning there. I just got to go back over with a comb and find out what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the obvious stuff is that uh, all, all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, how – you know, people, it might seem crazy, but surprise, it's all true. Right. You know, that's absolutely well, hey, the biggest one there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hey, Evan, well, I want to put you on, I, I want to put you on the spot a little bit. Okay. Okay. And I don't mean this to, to, to poke. I don't mean it to, to make fun or anything like that. This, this, this is a real thing. When I was rereading the book, I, I, I was really trying to understand you know, where you might be coming from when you read this book for the first time. Okay. We've had the, we've had the discussion about magic. Yep. A lot. And, and that whole thing. And, uh, you know, you're, you're still on the fence. I'm not sure exactly which way you're, you're leaning right now, right the second, but mm -hmm. this isn't about that. Um, but it, in comparison to that, we're reading a book that although it doesn't have magic magic, you know, the, the type of stuff that we're used to in, in, in other fantasy things. It has a lot of just paganism. Yes. How do you look at that and say, you know what, this is still something that, that I can suggest other people to read? Well, okay, so number one, it's C.S. Lewis. So I know he's... <laughs> So I know I trust him and I know Because yeah, you have to look past his mus his magic in his other books, too. If, yeah, yeah, and there's there's all sorts of things I could say about that as well. But um, but do you give him a pass in all of his stuff, uh, all the magic in his other books? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I can, if you want me to talk about that, I can. But with this particular book, right. I know it's C.S. Lewis. I know he's going to go somewhere with it. I know that there's going to be a metaphor somewhere. And then when you when you finally see Cupid. Um, you realize obviously he's a metaphor for Christ or or God, um, because the Greek gods were not described in the way C.S. Lewis is describing this thing that she's seeing. It's that's how God is described in like Isaiah and stuff. Um, so, and as far as the paganism, I thought the paganism was portrayed realistically. Um, the holy places are dark places, and when she's talking about it the first time, yes. That's because they're not actually holy places. They're demonic places for the worship of demons. And that's why they're dark and scary and everything smells like blood. And it's it's creepy and, and it creeps her out and all the, all the things about it creep her out. And so I thought that was very uh, realistic. And then when we, when we go to the Greek gods, we find out, okay, there are no Greek gods. It's... It's a it's a metaphor for or e either it's a metaphor for real God or it's maybe this is a, this is a historical fiction story about a miracle or something that God did didn't make it into the Bible or something, you know, um, where it is just God. So that's how I saw it. Um, and it, it the whole thing's just pointing people to to Christ and the the 
magic-y stuff, as far as the pagan-y stuff, is all uh, it's all portrayed as as how it should be for me. Yeah, I mean, the paganism in this book is not glorified, and it's not even given right. an opportunity to be true. Right. And, and and so in that way, it is kind of a, I don't know, it's definitely a realistic fantasy. Let's put it that way. Right, but if someone was, was looking just at this book and knew nothing of C.S. Lewis and mm-hmm. just picked it up and read it, and you know it was stripped of its if, if any prefaces or anything like that, and the the back cover and the front cover, so no one knew it was a Christian book or who who wrote it. They wouldn't. I mean, would someone pick this up and get the sense that oh, this is really a metaphor for the Christian God? They would get a sense. I don't know if they would get the sense that this is a metaphor for the Christian God and for the Christ, but. I believe they would at least get a sense of what the book is saying. If not the words that it is saying, the the more general meaning of what it is saying. That's how I, I, I think people respond to it who don't know about him and don't know about his background. Okay. I, I think good. so. I mean, I, I obviously I, I cannot put myself into that position and into that situation. Um, you'd have to give this to an atheist who had never heard of, of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, and, and good luck there, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think almost anyone who had read it, knowing that he wrote it, would be able to pick out those kind of things that are in it. Well, what about themes then? You know, what what would someone pick up out of these books, do you think, if if they just read it? And, and what do we pick up? I mean, well, we've, we've talked about some of those big ones. I mean, Evan right. brought up that really big one of the idea yeah. of someone who has experienced something that is absolutely real and truthful. But mm-hmm. that, uh, like you, you said, then is so absurd that, you know, how could you believe such a thing? Well, you believe it because it happened and it's true. You know, And mm-hmm. and uh, and so that I mean, that's a, a huge huge one but um yeah i, I think the th- the big thing that resounds with me is her journey and 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 is the things that she is trying to she is wrestling with the angel the whole time you know she is just wrestling with right. how do i make sense of this and how do i make sense of my sister who went mad but she wasn't acting like she was mad and i might have seen the palace for a brief moment in time, I saw a palace. What do I make of that? And so right. it's it's her journey to truth and to, you know, to understanding. So, yeah, I mean, because truth without understanding doesn't help you much either. Right. And yeah. and so that's where, you know, there's a lot of philosophers out there who are, who yeah. there's, there's truth. There, well, not just, <laughs> no, not just facts, not just facts, but but looking at, okay, so... This is how the world works. There's something more and there's the, you know, sin or there's evil or, or all these different things and they come close, but they don't understand mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they don't have the guidelines, you know, they don't have, um, they don't have this, the, the special, um, well, the special understanding that comes from the Holy Spirit. The secret decoder ring. Yeah. yeah. The sling <laughs> or, ring. Or- <laughs> yeah, or you know, slingering, or or they're 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 looking at it, and you know Romans one it says they they suppress the truth in righteousness. Yeah. So they have the truth, 
but it, it can't possibly be that. You know, okay, I, I saw the god's castle, but that can't be what I it saw. It can't be what I saw. Yeah. Mm. You know? I so, cannot trust my eyes because it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And and so that, that's the big thing that resounds with me is just her journey. This is a character that you when she starts dealing with her flaws, you really care because she's a she's not a horrible horrible person at all. Right. You know, and you can, but you can she almost... has she has flaws. But as she's digging into them, you, you want her to succeed. You want her to yeah. get past them, and and it's it's a beautiful thing to see her be able to do so. But then also a tragic thing that happened you know, that she waited so long to be to be able to. And you know, it, it, there, there's tragedy and and there's pathos and there's all the good things that give you good drama, and and it, you, you spend the entire book in her head. You know, and mm-hmm. and it could be a horrible place to be, but it... <laughs> but the entire time it's written so well because you know you feel for her, and she makes these little mistakes in logic, or she makes these little mistakes and, and goes a little bit too much to the uh, to the you know the sensual and and it just it's like oh no go back you know it's like oh no and and you you want her to succeed uh, truly and. It's not like a beautiful woman that you're watching, you know, Princess Amidala or something, and, and you want her to to survive that 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 third movie because she's so virtuous and, and you know she's the psyche, you know she's she's the one that you want to live and, and to 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 see on the screen at the end, getting awards and medals and things thrown at her feet, and she doesn't. So it's so tragic for her. With with Orwell, it's like you want that for her, even though. She's so hideous that she puts a veil over her face for most of her life and she overcomes and she keeps moving on and and she still has this weight, this albatross around her and she still keeps going on until she's albatross. Okay. There's a a epic poem called the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Just keep moving. Sorry. We'll we'll tell him later. (laughs) It is an epic 200 year old poem written by samuel taylor coleridge it's beautiful it's absolutely positively fantastic beautiful it is epic i will go it and you. read it it's not now long. it's not long if you if you haven't if you haven't read it go and read it now it is positively beautiful and okay. it is one of those things where you should have read it already so anyway I'm, she has it around her neck actually I'm it's quite possible that you have read it <laughs> yes yeah, so when you read it you'll understand the albatross metaphor so backing up she has this around her neck and the entire time you you want to help her take it off. And it's so well written. I'm just um, amazed that you could write a book like that and not be and not give the sense of, of disgust or, you know, just the sense of, you know, well, this person deserves to to be ugly because of the, the, the nastiness in their soul or anything. You can see it just like trying to creep out and trying to scream out and it's doing all those little baby things that they're not there yet and it it's almost like listening to a child even though she's you know absolutely whatever absolutely yes yes and by the time she can finally put the words together to ask her daddy the question of you know why is this thing hurting me or whatever the question answers her question 
And that's the beauty of it. When she rails against the gods and she's saying, mine, 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 and all this stuff, and the god just says, enough, is your question answered? The only thing she can say is yes. Mm. You know, it's because it is the answer. She is, Her eyes are open. Her mind is blown because she sees through it now. And, and she, she sees to, that whole thing. And she has to face a truth that she doesn't want to face. <laughs> exactly. You know, and that is something because here's the other thing. I when I read this book and, and, and this there's all sorts of issues that we can sort out and discuss and psychoanalyze within when I say this. But uh, I see myself in her so much. And I think that might be at least maybe not in high school, but in college, that might be one of the things that really uh, pulled me in to say this is my favorite novel of all time mm-hmm. is is that I saw myself in her right and it's a very she's a very specific character from a very specific made up place in right. a specific time and who clearly does not I mean I will never be the ruler of a nation let alone the queen of a nation um, <sighs> really yeah and, and but the ugliness that she has you know you can kind of get into that idea of that is kind of our human nature that we are not a beautiful thing because of our sinful nature and when she has to face that truth at the end and it's just again it's 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 not written as a tragedy at that moment but at the same time it kind of is and and there are many times in anyone's life who really wants to understand truth or who wants to live a godly life, who wants to follow the path of Christ, where you have to sit back and realize this thing that I've been doing or this decision that I have to make, this decision that I have to make, I can do this thing or I can do that thing. But if I do this thing, it is not right. And, and But I have to do this other or I've been doing the wrong thing for so long and just getting hit with that. I, I, sometimes I think they call it a, a truth bomb, you know, where <laughs> where it's just, you know, life just dropped the mic, you know, at right. me, you know, and like I have to either accept this truth. And it, it happened today, literally today. I'm not going to tell you the situation, <laughs> but it happened today where I was having a conversation with my wife and she said, you know what we have to do here, right? And she <laughs> kind of pushed me into actually, she's like, you need to say it. <laughs> you know, you say, what, what, are we, what do we have to do here? And I just, I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to do it. Right. <laughs> and, and it, but I had to face this truth that it was something that, okay, you know, if I'm going to do the things that I know God is calling me to do, this is something that I have to do. Right. And I don't want to, but, <laughs> you know, and so I kind of said, well, we have to, she's like, no, I want you to say it. Not like, oh, we have to do it. I want you to say it like, we need to do this. You know, I want you to say it like, I don't know if she wanted me to say it like I meant it or say it like I liked it, but um, it's, it's the character of or- Orwell. I mean, regardless of how I say her name is one that I really can resent it, it just resounds with me and i really find right. myself in her character in different shoes I, i'm in a different place in my life every time i've read this book but uh, that's that's what resounds with me so yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. she's the not every man, but you know every the every every man. person. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's it's the person where she has a very obvious ugliness, and most people have a very hidden ugliness, and it it can be something perceived or misperceived when someone says, you know, oh, something bad happened to me. So that makes me ugly or I did something bad in my past and that makes me ugly inside and stuff that we, no one can see, but no one can see Oroo because she has a mask over her face, a veil. And that's what we do. We veil those places up. We wall them up. We don't let people see them. And it's, you know, it, it, it's almost like Schrodinger's cat when you look at Orwell because you see this queen, this warrior, this this person who has done so much in her life, and you automatically assume that, well, maybe she's covering her face because she's so wonderful to look at. Hmm. But she's uh, not. That's in the book. I mean, that's yeah. – everyone's trying to figure out why is she trying to hide her face. Is it because she's yeah. so ugly or because she's so beautiful? Yeah. And – she knows. She knows the truth. So she's not fooling herself. But we, as as you know, going through our life, whatever we have inside us that we consider ourselves ugly, that's something that we know. And someone can look at us and say, "Oh, wow, you look. You're, you know, you lost a lot of weight." Or, "Wow, you look really, really pretty. I like what you've done you with your hair." Whatever. And inside, we say to ourselves, "Yes, but if you knew." And that it goes right. Yeah. right back to the true cause of it, which is sin. And when we can get to that point, I think that's when we can actually start to have our face being made. Yeah. And, and I, and I, that might be one of the things that causes me to resound with her is just that, that ma that mask, you know, and we all wear masks. Do you remember Jim Carrey's the mask? There's that, that line that I just, we all wear masks in our own way, you know. It's, yeah, and we do. No, I'm literally talking about a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be interesting to watch that movie with a Christian perspective on it, you know. It'd be interesting to watch that movie with you know 20 years later to say, <laughs> is, is it still funny? Because that was really funny, but I don't know if it would still be funny. Let's do it. Let's. That movie do, do is. A Christian take on it. That movie is how I discovered that I had gone through puberty. <laughs> yes, I remember nice you saying that. I remember <laughs> you saying that. I used to watch it all the time as a kid, and then I watched it when I was a teenager, and I was like, I do not remember her being dressed like that. <laughs> all right. I remember a movie. I remember a movie that uh, I specifically remember because I hadn't gone all the way through puberty yet, and the movie didn't resonate with me because of what it was. Good morning, Vietnam. I thought it was just going to be a comedy. So I was just going to, you know, sitting there for yucks the entire time. And all of a sudden it turned into this serious thing. And I'm like, what just happened? You know, I wanted to laugh and now I have to feel about something. <laughs> okay, I what? hate feeling <laughs> feelings. <laughs> they do get in the way uh, sometimes. It does. One thing I wanted to, to uh, also bring out, um, when I was talking, when I uh, brought up with Evan about the pagan thing, uh, C.S. Lewis actually um, addressed the 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 pagan slash Christian 
themes that are going on in, in the real world in our lives. And I think when we read this book, it sort of brings them to the fore. And I think this really speaks about them in a way that really makes sense and peels back all the layers that we might misunderstand. Um, it was in uh, a, a group of letters he was writing. Um, I think they were originally in, in Latin or something. It, 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 it's called the Latin letters of C.S. Lewis. It was uh, probably in Latin. And uh, he yeah, says yeah, here... He, he was writing to a, 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 a priest who they wrote to, back and forth to each other in Latin. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, he says... Uh, what you say, this is C.S. Lewis talking about the other man, what you say about the present state of mankind is true. Indeed, it is even worse than you say, for they neglect not only the law of Christ, but even the law of nature as known by the pagans. For now, they do not blush at adultery, treachery, perjury, theft, and the other crimes which the pagans and the barbarians have themselves denounced. They err who would say the world is turning pagan again. Would that it were. The truth is that we are falling into a much worse state. Post-Christian man is not the same as pre-Christian man. He is as far removed as virgin is from widow. There is nothing in common except want of a spouse. But there is a great difference between a spouse to come and a spouse lost. The man he's is saying, a genius. Yeah, he's amazing. He's <laughs> saying that paganism mm -hmm. is man's looking forward to something and anticipating that thing and mis making mistakes and, and messing up and doing it the wrong way. And, hey, blood is involved. Let's kill stuff. And doing all that stuff because there's an anticipation of something that is to come. And what we're in now, this post-Christian world, is them saying – all that stuff is bunk and we're just going to do what we want. And it's, it's past that point. They're not looking towards anything. And if they're doing anything that involves blood, it's because they want blood. You know, it's, it's amazing when you look at it that way, because sometimes people look at the pagan thing and they, they say, Oh, we're just going back to that. And he says, would that we were, would that it, would it, would that it were going back pagan again. And it's 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 just not. I don't know if we have anything else. I have one more thing I wanted to touch on, but if someone else had some more stuff, why don't you go ahead? Let's let's make our. This will be our final comments. Okay. Um. One thing I wanted to to discuss, and this this can be briefly, is uh, a style point. Uh, if I can get my note here, um, about Orwell herself and how she speaks and and writes, and uh. It's very interesting because she uses words that are obsolete or, you know, a, a, a certain dialect. And it's not what you would think when you're looking at the book. And obviously it's, it's written, you know, supposedly a couple hundred years before Christ and stuff like that. But she still uses words that I've never seen before. I'm Googling them and not finding them. <laughs> It's great when I find a book like that because it, it gives me more stuff to, to dig into. And it really it, – it, when I started reading it, it added to the flavor of 
the way that she is and it, that oldness, it gave that sense of, of age to it that it sometimes when someone is writing a book nowadays or you see a movie set a couple hundred years ago and they use some word that is, you know, it, it's slang, modern slang. And you're like, they wouldn't have used that word back then. And it betrays the whatever the piece of art. You know, it's it's like, why yeah, would you yeah. choose it's, that? It's like when I was reading um, Canterbury Tales and it's a modern trans- translation and actually says you can like it or lump it. And I'm just, <laughs> okay, I, I, I understand what I'm reading here, but, or the message, I guess, is the other thing is the, the message oh. translation of the Bible, which oh, uh, the word from the street. Have you ever had the word from the street? Oh, Bible? Yes. I, my dad had that. Terrible. I loved that. At least I think that's <laughs> it's it's the hippie one, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like in the beginning, nothing, and then bang, zoom, God did it. And it's like seriously. <laughs> yeah, that I loved it in just the 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 kitched of it. Um, it's horrible. <laughs> have you guys read the? Uh, have you guys read any of the Pigeon Bible? No. No in Pigeon no. English. Yes, from Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can it's sort of stuff. yeah. I I feel for that because it's actually translated into a dialect of English that we don't use. Right. But when you're translating it into cool lingo, dude, you know. <laughs> Here's like, the one thing I'll give it though, Steve, and, and I give it to this and to the message. Uh, it is putting it into a a language that people speak, and it puts it into an opportunity to understand that you might not get, especially from the King James. Mm-hmm. Um, just, and and the same find... thing with the like it or lump it from that Canterbury tales <laughs> uh, translation, I'm reading it and it's a breezy read all of a sudden, uh, you know, Canterbury tales is written in old English. And so it's translated out of old, old English, which almost does not sound like the same language and absolutely does not read like the same language. And it puts it into words that and, and ideas and concepts that are more easily understood. And there are some really good passages in the message that it's a poetic retelling of the thing. It's just not the thing. That's the thing for me is with the message. It, it's great as a devotional. It's great as a, um, uh, a illumination. It's great as an illumination. It's great as uh, Peterson sitting down and saying, this is what I believe this verse means. And I'm going to put it in these words and, and the, the groovy Bible, I believe that they're putting into that language as if to make it more accessible to the people they were trying to reach out to. If it was more theologically sound, I wouldn't have a problem with it. And I think that's, that's the real problem. It takes away from the theological soundness of it. I just personally find it not theologically sound enough to actually call it a Bible. Really. All right. Let's do our final words here. Was that your final word, Steve? I think no. I lost. So. I have one more final word. Okay. That you guys can make this your final Evan, word. Then. Evan can do his. Okay. Do you want me to do mine? Or yeah, go, yeah, go for it. And then we'll go to Evan. All right. Another C.S. Lewis quote. And I think this is, it's, it's cogent because you can apply this to fiction. You can apply this to lots of different things, even the groovy Bible. Um, and, it still sort of, you know, makes makes some sense. He said at one point, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, 
but because by it, I see everything else. I like that quote. I always, I always think it's going to say, but because I feel it's warmth every time. <laughs> and then I'm wrong. Of course you're wrong. What happens in the middle yeah. of winter? <laughs> oh, you can still feel its warmth. You oh. don't live in New England, do you? <laughs> no. Just imagine if there was no sun, Steve. You walk out into that and there's no sun. There's got to be an invisible sun. <laughs> and Evan doesn't laugh. I don't. What is <laughs> that course. from? Classic song by the police back in the 80s. Way yeah. before you were born. Don't know. <laughs> It's classic, but not one of their best that you would know. No. So do we get final words from you, Evan? We need to wrap this thing up. No, not yet. Okay, Okay, what's your your final word? I I really enjoyed this book. I don't have a history with it, obviously, like Ben and Steve does, but uh, do. But uh, I really enjoyed it. It's it's now one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books. I'm probably going to read it again in the near future. Um, I might read it uh, to my wife because I think she should experience it. And, uh, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. Go read it. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, it's a great read. And here's what I'm going to end on. When the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech, which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot, like been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? I heard the voice of God, so I followed it. Left behind the ones I love the most, no apologies. Somewhat jealous like I forsook them for this monument Somewhat salty, I parted grips, dissolved the partnership See, sometimes immortal speaks And we desire to see the face of God on earth So much we hope that he has more to teach But no one hears the voice of God and thinks it's something else So when I run the light, I think I'm running from myself When it's long and it brought me here So leave it really means returning to a home That I never had but I always wanted near for that, I'll make an angel break my bones to dust Attack until my name is new Until the casket closes shut Till every lover resents me And barely a one respects me Dead and buried, no respects And no one cares, none ever accept me I haven't done enough for love And how could love accept me? A broken bone, embedded stone A newer name is empty Fold your frame of broken bones across this frozen lake. Regret just blows across the emptiness of open plains. Guilt resides in spiteful corners of a soulless place. So die before you die, beloved. That's the only way. Home awaits those souls to break the bonds and slow decay. It's cold and snowy nights that slowly fade from lonely days. 
But it's worth these frozen veins to see a perfect face. So dig the words right out of us. To this cage of fragile ribs protecting us is shattered. Gladly grounded back to dust. And return to earth as fleeting vapor, ash and rust. Why should he listen to us babble in a thousand tongues? See when tread and beauty clash and force his souls to speak. And ease the bowing tongues to plead the blood that no one bleeds. The kind that opens gates to welcome home the lowest thieves. The kind that gives us faces so we see what holy means. Yeah. 